Good morning. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and uh, Chad will give you one. You take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Now I need to know who was in charge of spring <laughs> and summer and fall. I hate cold weather. I hate it and it hates me. It's a mutual uh, hatred for each other and, and uh, it will continue apparently. So uh, I just can't get warm when it's really cold. When you take uh, blood thinner and you have arthritis and uh, it's just tough getting old. You don't, you don't feel sorry for me, don't you? No, you don't. Some of you can empathize though, I got a feeling. So that's good. All right, Acts chapter 3. Have you found it? Acts chapter 3. I need to let you know something and maybe apologize to a few of you. Um, I was in the middle yesterday of texting Mike Hill's sweet wife. Kay lost her. Her sister passed away yesterday. And I'm in the middle of texting her about that, and my phone just went dead. It just died. So... um, if you try to get a hold of me in the last 24 hours, it's not that I'm a jerk and didn't return your call or <laughs> return your text. You can always email me. I can still get those. But um, if not, the funeral for my phone will be Tuesday afternoon if any of you would like to attend. We're trying to get enough pallbearers to carry all of it, but I've got in there. But um, I'm, Verizon couldn't figure out what was wrong with it, and I made the mistake of driving by the Apple store without an appointment. <laughs> they don't even have a sign on the door and there's 7,000 people in the room. And I'm like, I'm not standing in that line with the other knuckleheads. To use an Andy Griffith episode, I'm not standing in the stag line with old man Schwump. So you can look that up if you'd like to. You have to be, you have to be classic to understand that. All right. So if you need to get a hold of me over the next couple of days, you just call the church. They'll, I've got an old flip phone that we kept. I got that number, and I got that phone, and Beth has it, and church will have it, and uh, uh, staff will have it. You have to get a hold of me, and you can always email me. I'll have my, my computer. So if you try to get hold of me in the last 24 hours, I apologize. It just, uh, it died. All right, Acts chapter 3. If you look at your handout, coming off Resurrection Sunday and celebrating that incredible time in the history of the church, And we've been talking about, as we're doing our series on the book of Acts, that it is a book of history. And and always, when you're studying a book in the Bible, it really helps you to know the type of literature that you're looking at. For example, if you're in Proverbs, it's a book of wisdom. You understand it that way. And a lot of symbolism, a lot of things you can take from that when you understand that it's poetry and that it's wisdom. The Psalms are almost like, it's like a hymn book. You almost sing the Psalms. They did sing the Psalms and they chanted them. And and so... You understand the type of book that you're studying. If it's a book of prophecy, you, you understand, all right, you've got an immediate context, but you've also got a future context. But when you're studying Acts, it's really important to keep coming back and keep reminding yourself that it's history. You're studying the history of the early church. And if you'll notice, our, every week we have the idea that our great commission continues. Jesus said to, to us, Father, your kingdom come, teaching us how to pray. Your will be done in the model prayer. And then in the Great Commission, go. 
and make disciples. I am with you always. That was his commission. He, he then ascends. We've studied all this. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for his, his church right now. That's what he's doing. He's our high priest at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And, and, but his commission to us as his children, as his body, as his bride, as Christians, little Christ is literally what it means in the original language, that we go into our world. It was their world for Peter and John and the apostles and the early church. That's what we're studying. And we learn those principles of what happened in that first hundred years. And then we are to live those out. That commission has not changed. It will not change. Jesus is with us. And he's coming back one day to take us home to be with him. In the interim, believers die and we go to be with him. But he's coming back one day. We'll all be together as his body as his bride, it's really fascinating to study that the great, the first great celebration in the eternal state when Jesus sets up the final kingdom is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you're very significant as a believer. We are the bride. And if you've ever been to a wedding, and I've officiated at many of those, the one thing you need to learn more than anything else, and I always tell the grooms this when I'm doing premarital counseling with them, What's the one thing a man has to learn to have a successful marriage? Two words. Yes, dear. That's it. If you get yes, dear down, you're good. But you got to be sincere when you say it. You can't be gritting your teeth going, yes, dear. Yes, dear. Sweetie. I love the word sweetie because that's what I call Mary. But I don't say yes, sweetie. Like yesterday, we were out shopping. I found this beautiful shirt that I wanted to wear. Darren would have thought it was beautiful. It's almost exactly like the shirt Darren has on. It really looks good. But sweetie, <laughs> I'm not going to ask Darla about the shirt, but uh, sweetie didn't like the shirt that Randy wanted. So Randy ain't wearing that shirt, is he? A few weeks ago, I wore a shirt I really like. Got many compliments on it. Sweetie didn't like that shirt. So guess where it is now? Clothes closet and barter. No, it's not, but it will be. It's just a matter of time. You learn, yes, dear. We are the bride. Man, I, sometimes I just love to stop and meditate on who I am in Christ. Not from an ego perspective, but like the Apostle John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what he meant by that was, I am overwhelmed that Jesus, the Christ, could love me because I know me. I know I'm not lovely. That's why the Apostle Paul called himself, what, chief among sinners. He said, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? He didn't want to sin, but he did. You don't want to sin, but guess what? You do. And yet Jesus intercedes on your behalf with the Father. You're his bride, and it's permanent. Nobody's taking that away from you. That's who you are in Christ. And you don't always do what your groom wants you to do. It's like Mary doesn't always do what she should do, like what I tell her to do. But that's okay. She's still my what? Still my sweetie, still my bride. When Jesus is not always pleased with me, but that relationship will never change. And so as we study the early church, it's very significant that we look at each interaction that the apostles have 
particularly with non-believers, but as they're teaching the church and as the church is growing, and you're going to see it grows. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added. And you're going to see that over and over again. Thousands on this day, thousands here. And then they're bringing them into the church. And then their realization is, we've got to disciple these people. We can't just leave them. We've got to take them. Even what they're doing across the hall and what we do across the street and what we do in small groups and, and, and Bible studies and all of those things is in relationships. It's that those of us who are maybe a little further along in the faith than someone else, we take them by the hand and do what? Lead them. So that when I'm not here anymore, they can take the hand of someone else that they've already got, that they're leading, and lead them further. It's exactly what the early church did. And that's what we're still doing to this day. And it will not change until Jesus comes back. So today, in Acts chapter 3, we're going to look at an historic miracle. It's fascinating when you study it in the context of the book, context of Scripture. And don't, please don't forget, I hate to keep saying it over and over, but it's the only way I can get something, so maybe you're there too. Do not forget you're reading history here. You're not reading an epistle where he's just writing a letter about doctrine. You're reading history, what really happened in the early church. And then you get doctrinal principles out of that, but see what God was doing. That's the key. If you open your Bible and don't do this, go to Acts chapter 3. But if you open to the beginning of the book of Acts, you'll see a title in your Bible that says, The Acts of the Apostles. And I mentioned this to you several weeks ago. But really, it, it ought to be titled, The Acts of the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles. Because that's really what you're seeing as you study the book of Acts. It's what the Holy Spirit did after the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, tarry at Jerusalem, you will receive power to go then and do what I've commissioned you to do. You'll get the power of the Holy Spirit that you can go do what I told you to do and make disciples, learner, followers of me. You teach them what I taught you, that's discipleship, and I will be with you. Look on your handout if you need to. I'll be with you how long? Always. That's why I love to think about it this way. I mentioned it several times now. When we come together as the body of Christ, we're studying the word of God, we're worshiping together like that, 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 uh, the songs we've done today, just so beautiful. It brings you together to focus on the person of Jesus Christ and realize he's in our midst. He sent the Holy Spirit, and and John, when he said that, he said, I'll send you another comforter. And the Greek is, I'll send you another comforter, helper, just like me. Jesus was in the room physically with them, but he said, I'm going away. I'm going to send you another one. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you and in you. He's right here in our midst so that we can do this. Without him, we have no power. With him, he's omnipotent. We have all the power that we need to go do what he's commissioned us to do. So the context, when you get to Acts chapter 3, there are two emphases in Acts chapter 3 and 4. They're kind of, kind of tied together. There's two things that are really being emphasized at this moment in history as you get into the book of Acts. Number one is the name of Jesus, that everything's being done in the name of Jesus. That's really important. You'll see as we walk through this. Look at chapter th- uh, 3, verse 6. Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. What I do have, I give to you. I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that's going to be our emphasis in this particular message. Verse 16, same chapter, 316. And in his name, Jesus' name, through faith in Jesus' name, has made this man strong, 
whom you see and know. The faith which, which comes through him has given him, this man, this lame man, perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Hang on to that. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. When they had set them in the midst, they asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? They're being interrogated. Peter and John are being interrogated by the Sanhedrin. And they're saying, hey, by whose name are you healing people? What do you think you're doing? We'll get into that. Chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely, this is Sanhedrin again, let us severely threaten them, yet from now on they speak to no man in this name. Verse 18, they called them, Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. I can't wait till we get to that. Verse 30, by stretching out your hand to heal, signs and wonders may be done through, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now go back to chapter 3, verse 1. First emphasis in chapters 3 and 4, you've just seen it. The name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus comes up over and over. So please understand what that means. It means the authority, the power, the reputation, the status, the position of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. How much power does Jesus have? We mentioned it a moment ago. He has all power. Peter doesn't have that kind of power. So it's done not in Peter's name, but in whose name? Jesus' name. That's why when we pray, we pray in the name, the person, the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why someone gets saved through the power and the name who he is, Jesus Christ. I can't save anyone but I can tell people who can save them because he saved me. That's what a witness is. I'm sharing with you what I know, what I've experienced, what I've been through. Jesus redeemed me. He saved me, gave me new life, gave me purpose, meaning, gave, gave me a reason for existence. I can tell you about all of that, but I can't do it for you. We will see later that um, Paul agonizes over that. He said, I wish I could die, I could be, give up my faith in Christ. It's a very poignant moment in the life of the Apostle Paul. He says, I wish I could give mine up, my redemption, and I could be saved for my people, the Jews. But I can't. Because who's the only one that can save them? Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. They rejected him, and it hurt Paul. Paul was a Jew, obviously. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews in Philippians. You read his, his resume. He was on the Sanhedrin. You couldn't have been any more Jewish. He was all the way at the top of the ladder. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it radically, obviously, changed him, where he became the apostle to the Gentiles. But he loved his Jewish people, and he wanted to see them know Jesus in the way he knew them. Do you ever feel that way? Think about it in your own family, extended family or relatives, or people you know that, that you just love, that, that you're close to, who don't know Christ. And you hurt for them, don't you? Because you know what Jesus has done for you. 
You know what he's given to you. And, and I mean, I have many relatives, and I think all the time about my two brothers, my, my, my two siblings. They don't have the hope. They don't have the peace that I have because they don't know Christ. And I hurt for them. So I want us to see this historical miracle, miracle in that context. The name of Jesus. Do not forget that. Secondly, very important, look at, uh, well, we don't have to look there. We'll talk about it. Secondly, is that the people that he's talking to at this moment in time and history are Jewish. Very important. It, it really makes it come alive and mean more when you understand he's talking to Jewish people. This is going to begin to transition. I want you to flip over to chapter 21 of the book of Acts, verse 17. 21, 17. Because Acts is the story of the early church. At the point we're at now in Acts chapter 3, it's Jewish. Jew, it's at Jerusalem. The Jewish people coming to know Christ. But it's still at Jerusalem. Paul hasn't been, uh, Saul of Tarsus has not become the Apostle Paul yet. The church is being led by Peter. They're still at Jerusalem. Chapter 21, verse 17. We had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now, this is about Paul, obviously, at the end of the book of Acts. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, this is at Jerusalem, and he's talking about what God has done for Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother... How many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. Now go back to chapter 3. That's where we're headed. And you're beginning to see the transition, even in chapter 3. But remember, historically, at this moment in chapter 3, it's Jewish. And you're going to see a transition from an all-Jewish early church to one that was Jews and Gentiles, and the emphasis being that it's one body. You'll see Paul talk about it and write about it over and over. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. We are one in Christ. You'll see it over and over and over again in the writings of the Apostle Paul. We're transitioning in that direction. Peter's going to struggle with that. I love the Bible because it's just real. When it came time to accept Gentiles, Peter had a real problem with that. And God had to get his attention. He was a bigot. Don't you love that? Not that he was a bigot, but that God is real and honest. He had to be taught, had to be shown that Romans were acceptable in the eyes of God. That Jesus died for them too. So you're going to see a transition. So what God is doing, look at chapter 2, verse 43, and then let's get into chapter 3. 243. This is the day of Pentecost. Remember the Holy Spirit has come and they've seen those incredible three signs we've talked about. Now verse 43. Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done. Please notice this last phrase. It's, it sets up the book of Acts. Those signs and wonders were done. What's the last phrase of verse 43? Through the what? Does it say it says through them, does it not? If it doesn't, it should. I don't know what your translation says, but it should say through the apostles. In other words, who's doing the work? 
Is it Peter doing it, or is it the Holy Spirit doing it through Peter? Clearly, it's the Holy Spirit doing it through, through Peter. Peter doesn't have the power to just walk up and raise anybody he wants to from the dead, or heal anybody he wants to, a paralysis. God has that power. He's the one that's omnipotent. Jesus, I'll be with you, and I'm going to be working through you. That's the message of the book of Acts. That's the history. And if you, if you miss that, you get some wrong doctrine that comes out. And you get faith healers, and you get Elmer Gantries, and you get Benny Hens, and you get people that are fake. God can heal miraculously, but who chooses when and where? God does, not Peter, not Randy, not anyone else. That's God's business. So what God is doing in chapter 3, what the Holy Spirit is doing in chapter 3, historically is authenticating the work of the apostles as the church age begins as being authentic and of God, not some magician that's rolled into town or group of magicians, but that God is doing a new thing, a spectacular thing through these people. He's authenticating them as genuine. The very last verse, I don't want you to turn it, I'm just going to quote it for you. The very last verse in the Gospel of Mark, which is really probably Peter giving that, his reflections on Jesus to Mark and being written down, John Mark. The very last verse in the book of Mark says this. They went out, the disciples, and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs, that what they had to say about Jesus, God miraculously verified through miracles like we're going to look at. Paul later says, the signs of an apostle were accompanied, were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So, let's get to chapter 3. I know it's a lot of introduction. Let's think about chapter 3 for a moment. Pentecost has come. The Holy Spirit has fallen. God's doing amazing things, bringing thousands of people into the church. They're now in fellowship, and they're growing, and God's going to give them a historic sign in chapter 3 as they continue on. He's going to heal this man who has congenital paralysis. Since birth, he's never walked, never stood, never run, never jumped, and he's 40 years old. And Peter's going to say to him, rise up and walk. And we're going to see what happens. Peter does that. Well, here's my point. Why this particular guy? Why him? Why this moment? That's the important thing that you don't want to miss. God chose at this moment in time for Peter to speak to that man and tell him, rise up in the name of Jesus Rise up and walk, and he did. For that moment, in time, in history, there are two purposes of healing in Scripture. Number one is to authenticate the gospel message and the messenger. We just talked about that. And the other is to show, in a very real object lesson, the grace of God towards someone. Because the guy is laying at the beautiful gate at the temple. He's been laying there his entire life, Every day, he picked the right place because 
And particularly this time, there would be thousands there because it was Pentecost. But beyond that, every day, people are coming to the table, to the gate beautiful, and he lays there every day and he begs. What does he beg for? He's asking alms. So what's he asking for? Money, right? Every day of his life, he'd been carried there, laid there to beg for money, expecting someone to give him money. Why this day? Why this time? Because God was doing something at that moment in time. We'll talk about this as we walk through. In the book of Acts, every recorded healing in the book of Acts is performed on the life of an unbeliever. Not a Christian, but an unbeliever. It's a sign by God to authenticate to that unbeliever that these men talking to you have a spiritual message for you. Yes, I can heal you physically, and he does. Not every time. We'll see. But more importantly, they've got a spiritual message for you that will change your life for how long? Forever. This guy that they're going to heal. He was 40 years old. How much longer did he live? I don't know. What, What do I know? He didn't live another 100 years, right? He might have lived another 50? 10? I don't know. What do I know? At some point in time, he what? He died. So, yes, they gave him the ability to walk, and it's incredible when you think about it. We will. It's a magnificent moment. But at some point, he died. Well, what did they offer to him? And he probably accepted Beyond being physically healed in the moment, what did they offer to him? Not silver or gold. Please don't miss that. They didn't give him any money. They didn't have any. But what did they have for him? They had the name of Jesus Christ. So his life was not only changed in the moment physically, but he was offered to him to be changed permanently, eternally, forever, being given life, raised to new life in Christ. That's what they had to offer, by the way. What do you have to offer to people today? You're probably not going to walk up to someone and give them new life physically. You're not healing anybody of cancer. Now, God can do that, and you could be the tool through which he did that. That's God's business. But what can you share with any human being you encounter, no matter what their state physically, what can you share with them? You can share with them the way they can have eternal life in paradise forever, through the name of Jesus Christ. The only name, you've seen in here, by which a man can be saved. You can share that with people. And by the way, one last point on this and then we'll move on. The greatest miracle God ever performs is not healing a person physically. It's changing them from lost to saved. From death to life, spiritually. That's the greatest miracle ever performed. And again, he's the only one that can do that because he alone is God. So Jesus and the apostles through the Holy Spirit, many people were healed. But exponentially more were changed spiritually. They did not heal everybody they encountered. All right, let's look at the moment of the miracle. Verse 1, 3, 1. Peter and John went up together to, to the temple at the hour of prayer. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour kind of ironic, and maybe God doesn't waste uh, points. 
at what afternoon, at what point in the day did Jesus utter the words, it is finished? Three o'clock in the afternoon as he hung on the cross. So at this very moment, because the Jews went to the temple, and this is what, this was their time to go pray. The ninth hour, they go up there. So it's three o'clock at the temple. Thousands would be there. By the way, just, again, just so you'll get the point. There are thousands there. Do you think there was just one guy there begging at the gate beautiful? Of course not. There would have been many, right? Because that's where you would go to get coming to the temple to give. That's where you would go to ask people who are going to the temple, religious people who would have a compassion apart, would give you money. So you would go there to beg alms. So it wasn't just one guy there. There were many there. Yet God leads Peter. Let's keep reading. A certain man, verse 2, lame from his mother's womb, congenital paralysis. He was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. He asked for alms. God leads Peter, we'll see, to heal this man. He was not the only one that asked them for money, but God did not heal all of them. It's recorded for us that he healed this one man. Let's look at the work of this miracle. Verse 4, fixing his eyes on them with John, Peter said, look at us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive from them, expecting to receive from them money. That's what he's expecting to receive. Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now this guy had for 40 years, or for, he'd been that way his whole life. Chapter 4 tells us he was 40. So ever how long they've been carrying him and laying him there. Jesus was on earth ministering here, so for at least three years, and probably more, Peter, John, the disciples had seen this same guy at this gate begging every day, but they hadn't healed him, and Jesus did, hadn't healed him up to this point, right? What's the message? Who decides when the healing's going to take place? Jesus does. God does. When and how he decides. And his will is always perfect. Jesus had walked past this guy every day for a long time. And hadn't healed him. So those other times, did Jesus not care? Of course not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's about history, moment, authentication. Jesus knew he's omniscient. He knew he was going to heal the guy. But it's always in God's timing. That's why when we pray, we simply pray, Lord, if it is your will, your time, and in your will, we ask for healing. You don't tell God what to do. You ask. You seek his will because his will is perfect. So this is that guy's moment. And I love that he's expecting money. But Peter said, look at us. Peter gives him something far more valuable than money. The name of Jesus Christ. So he says to him, rise up and walk in Jesus' name. Not in Peter's name. Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Messiah of Nazareth, 
just for a moment, try to go back in time, and you're the beggar. And he says to you, you're a Jew. You're laying at the gate. You've been there for years and years. You've been begging. You know who Jesus of Nazareth is. Everybody knew at Jerusalem. So well, here's what you're thinking. Oh, this guy's not giving me any money, and he's saying in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, wait a minute. Isn't he the guy they just crucified for blasphemy? Of course, he knew. They just crucified him. I'm not interested in his name. I'm interested in money. That's about to change, isn't it? That's about to change. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you think was just a blasphemous, crazed fanatic, whom the Romans crucified and the leaders told us was a blaspheming son of Satan. That's what the Sanhedrin called him. You're telling me in his name, he's the Messiah? Jesus is the Christ? Jesus' power. Instantaneously, look at verse 7. Instantaneously. Peter says, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, this the Messiah, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up and immediately the beggar's feet and ankle bones received strength. Now here's a principle for you. Historically, we see what happens. It's almost emotional if you think about it, if you're that beggar. Peter takes you by the hand and suddenly, remember, he's never stood up in his life. His feet have never had any strength. And his ankles have never had any strength. Here's the point, the doctrinal principle. When Jesus heals somebody, what happens? They're healed. It's not fake. It's not a process. It's instantaneous. It's total. Look at verse 8. So he, leaping up, he stood and he walked and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising whom? His perspective on Jesus had just changed, hadn't it? That's what God is doing historically in the moment. You people thought Jesus needed to be crucified. You took Barabbas instead. Well, guess what? That Jesus still loves you, still going to show you grace. Rise up and walk. Look at, the, look at the verbs that are used. He stood up and he did what? Look at verse 8 again. I love this. He leaped up. I bet he did. He leaped up. He walked. And he entered. He'd never been able to go in the temple before. As a Jew, that was a, a big deal. He gets to walk in the temple for the first time in his life. By the way, he didn't have to be taught how to walk, did he? He never stood up before. How did he know how to walk? Because God, when God heals, God heals. It's total. It's not, I feel like somebody out here has got some back pain and it's going to go away. No, it's gone. This man can now leap, can run, can jump. He can probably play basketball. He can do anything he wants to do now because God has chosen to heal him as an authentication that Peter and John and people with them have a message you ought to pay attention to because God did this. But it's really important to understand. It's in the name of Jesus. If Peter were a charlatan, he could have made a lot of money out of this, couldn't he? He didn't say in in my name. He said in whose name? 
in the name of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah of Nazareth, you get up and walk. I don't have, I'm not a faith healer. I can't do this to anybody, but he's, he's going to heal you. You get up and walk. I can't give you any money, but you get up and walk. I think the guy was one of the money after that? Uh, instantaneously, totally. He didn't have to have therapy. Didn't have to be taught anything. He was healed. Now look at the witness of this, verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God. Verse 11. As the lame man who was healed, he held on to Peter and John. I love that picture. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. For the first time in his life, you see the witness of the, the beggar. He's not only changed, he latches on to, and that verb there in Greek means he grabbed a hold of them and he was not letting go. Why would he grab a hold of Peter and John? If this guy walks up to you and says, get up and walk, and you can suddenly run, jump, and walk, you're thinking what? I want to be around this dude. He doesn't know yet. He said in the name of Jesus, but there's something special about this guy. And he's, it's like Peter's trying to get away, and you know how you, you, your kid will grab a hold of your leg, and you're just dragging him across the floor. It's almost like that picture, except this guy, he can leap, he can jump, he can do whatever he wants. He's hanging on to Peter and John. He wants to know what is it these guys have. He just changed his life forever in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The Greek there where it says he held on to him in verse 11 says he clung to them and could not be separated. It's like this is my lifeline. I'm not letting go. I love the crowd. Look at them, verse 9 and into verse 10. They saw him walking and praising God, all the people. Now, these people who are seeing this guy walk and praise God, look at verse 11, excuse me, 10. They knew, they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. In other words, is there any doubt this guy has been changed? They can't deny it, can they? Even when, when Jesus performed miracles, and we will see, they couldn't deny that it happened. Now, they tried to attribute it to Satan at times, and the, the Jews did, and other but when, when Jesus performed a miracle, it was a no-doubter. This is a no-doubter. There's no question this guy has been healed because he's walking and leaping. And they knew it. So, well, this is the, and this is the guy who laid begging at the gate every day. He's walking. He's not an imposter. They knew him. They didn't bring, wasn't a charlatan. They didn't bring some guy in and fake heal him so he could run around and they could get money. No, they knew who he was. It was a no doubter. Look at chapter 4 for just a moment. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 16. 14 and 16. 14. 414. Seeing the man who had been healed, this is the same guy, it's the Sanhedrin, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. This is the Jewish leadership. They've been brought, they've been called in for doing this. And so, but basically, what are they saying about the, the man? We can't deny this happened. There's no question. It did. We can't, we can't refute that. Look at verse 16. Saying, what shall we do to these men? Peter and John, for indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them 
is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. These are the Jewish leaders who want to get rid of them, just like they wanted to get rid of Jesus. But all they can say about the miracle is what? We can't deny it. It happened. What are we going to do about it? We'll look at that down the road. Now go back to verse 15 of chapter 3. Look at the witness of the apostles. 3.15. It says, you killed the prince of life. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. Here's what they're saying. Yes, we're here and obviously we witnessed this miracle and Peter spoke to the man and God healed him. We all witnessed that, including us. But we also witnessed Jesus alive from the dead, as did many in that crowd. After he rose from the dead, we are eyewitnesses. We spent time with him. It's not just this miracle. It's what the resurrected Jesus, we've seen who he is. He's taught us. We've seen what he can do. He's the prince of life. I love that phrase. It's so important in this immediate context. Verse 15. He said, you killed the prince of life. That word prince, we think about Jesus being the prince of peace. Here when it calls him the prince of life, that word means the originator of life. The originator of life. He's the creator. John, in his prologue, or or Paul said this later. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, Old Testament. He was buried, he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. He was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After he was seen by over, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep or passed away. He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me, Paul, as by one born out of due time. And then Peter later on would write these words. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with gentleness and respect. The miracle. Jesus is the prince or the originator of life. John in his prologue said he gives light to every man coming into the world. He's the creator of life. And then later it says in that same prologue, he came into his own, the Jews, into his own creation and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, he gave the authority to become children of God. I want to stop here today because next week I really want to focus on the message behind the miracle And I want you to bow your heads for a moment and let's just reflect. Just meditate there where you are on who this man is that we call our Savior. And I realize you you know things, principles, doctrines about Jesus. But I think it's important to focus just for a moment here. on what he did for that beggar. It was a historic moment where he was authenticating Peter and John and their message. Yes, this is done by God. Yes, I can give him new physical life. 
but you also end up praising God, walking, leaping, entering the temple, and praising God. Maybe for the first time in his life, praising God rather than cursing God. In your life, the life of someone you love, there are a lot of times you may be praying, even now, praying for healing for someone. I know there's a lot of people in our church and extended families that we know that we pray for that God would heal. We have to always understand it's his choice, his time, his way. God heals in a lot of different ways. One of those ways, if you're a believer, is that he takes you home. It's the greatest healing we ever have. You get to go to paradise. But I think two things as we close today. If you're born again, if you're a Christian, it should remind you one more time that what you believe in the name of Jesus Christ will change people's lives permanently beyond this life. And what you share with them is miraculous Don't ever take it for granted and don't ever think it's trivial because it will change a beggar's life. Someone has said when we share the gospel, we're just telling one other beggar where he can find food. Something that will give them new life spiritually right now and will last them forever. So I want to encourage you to pray for people. You should never stop but also pray for opportunities to tell people about the miraculous gift of Jesus Christ. Not religion, not turning over a new leaf, but becoming a child of God because Jesus gave his life. So Lord, as we close out our time today together, I pray for all of us who are born again, who are Christians, that we'd be excited about our faith, not take it for granted, not just go through the motions, Pray for people. Reach out to people. Love them in the name of Jesus. Tell them what Jesus has done for us. That's all a witness is. Lovingly, gently, respectfully, as Peter wrote, share our faith. Because we have hope. And they don't. So, Father, as we end this day, excite us about this day, tomorrow, all the days that you give us, and we share the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing, and if you'd like for me to pray with you, I'll be down front.